why don't you give a little bit of info about yourself for everybody listening? Sure. I'll say that there are five things that guide and direct me in life. Servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. Those five things have enabled me to help individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits uh, to their pinnacle best. But equally, those five things have enabled me to become a speaker, a storyteller, educator, mentor and a coach, and problem solver, a writer and author, and uh, like a community activator. So all of those things resonate around the five things that make up my foundation. You have a lot of things under your belt. <laughs> so what do you do now? Do you teach? Um, do you, you teach? What do you teach? So I teach organizational behavior at university and uh, really it, enjoy that experience because you get to work with young people to realize not just what they want to do, but who they are. Mm -hmm. uh, but equally at the same time, I mean, uh, in the process of writing another book, as well as speaking on podcasts. I mean, I love to be a guest on podcasts. And I, I mentor in a coach probably about three to eight people a week, uh, just to help them navigate through life and journey. Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And did that stem from uh, you taking your own journey to finding your roots? Well, actually, it was even prior to that. I mean, when I graduated university, you know, you walk away going like, okay, I've got a degree in business and political science. Okay, who's lucky to get me? And you go in with this thing of you're prepared and whatnot. I was not prepared. And I started sending out letters to different companies with that attitude of, okay, you know, which one of you is going to be lucky? Sort of like the bachelor with the rose, um, you know? <laughs> right. Except, except... I got all of these back. These are my rejection letters, 86 rejection letters. It's about the size of a brick. Wow. A, yeah. These are companies who said, we don't know who you are. We don't have a job for you. Good luck. But I'm, you know, Reagan, I don't know why I kept them. Every letter that came in was a nail in my coffin of self-confidence. And uh, I don't know. It was one of those things that they came in and I, I looked at it going like, okay, but it made me realize I was not prepared and I was ready. But fortunately, after a period of time, I got my first job. And it was an entry-level government, business and political science. Makes sense, right? Right. My first job was emptying rubbish bins and uh, cleaning floors in a hospital as a janitor because that's government work. It's your part of a union. Yeah, sure. Sounds, and, sounds about right. Yeah. But you know what, though? It laid a foundation for who I am today. And it's actually really interesting because three life lessons that I pulled from being a janitor carries me to today. The first really? lesson, yeah, my father said, I don't care what you do. You better do the best job possible. Your reputation's on the line. So I put my heart and soul into being the best janitor. But all of that has always led me. Anything I do today, always put the quality in there. Second valuable lesson. You know, there were times I would get on an elevator with nurses, doctors, and administrators, and there were times I was ignored because they're professionals and you're a janitor. I know what this feels like. I will talk to everyone as a result of that. I never want anyone to ever feel they're not good enough, that they're inferior. And the third valuable lesson is as we go through 
our own respective journeys. I think sometimes what happens is we always look at it as an absolute. I mean, I've got a degree and I'm a janitor or I'm doing this. I always say, peel that onion skin. And what can you learn from anything that you do? And there are life lessons that emerge. It made me into this curious mindset always to say, no matter what I'm doing in life, what can I learn as a result? Those three things made me realize I wasn't prepared. So this is why I spend so much time on that journey of personal reflection and personal development. The journey to India was a little bit later, but it was equally important. Yeah, I wish I would have had that mindset when I went to school and then went back to school and then went back to school again. So I Do ended you, up with two would, degrees, but I don't, I don't really do anything with them. Well, and I wish I would have known me back then, you know, like the way I know <laughs> right. what I know now. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. equally, you know what, I we we needed to have gone through it and the the journey itself and it's about that activation piece. And the moment in my life happened a few years late, a number of years later, the moment I stopped looking at what I was going to do and focused on who I am, clarity emerged. And it made me realize I wasn't on the right train. I needed to get off at the next stop, get on the next train that was going to take me to my journey, which actually has led me to fulfillment. I think that's such a difficult thing for people to do is focus on themselves, understand who they are. I know I probably should not be left alone with myself for more than 20 minutes before I'm like, I am a potato. What am I? <laughs> who am I as a person? It's, you don't really yep. want to think about that a lot. Well, at least I don't. Well and, well, and the way that I help people realize that, I ask them, what are the five things in life you're not willing to compromise? So those those five things, which I said at the beginning, servant leadership, story sharing, activator, igniter, champion, enabler, and community do-gooder. It's not a matter of just saying, okay, what are the five things you're not willing to compromise? It's, okay, how do I help you? And the way that I do this, I say, when you were you know, in a job or what job you have, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? But tell me why. If school, tell me about the classes you did that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy. Why? And what do you like to do in your spare time and your social life? Why? And then by going through the process of asking why, you start finding and filtering key things that make sense. So, for example, I'll get uh, oftentimes I'll get people saying one thing I'm not willing to compromise is family. I said, OK, why? And they're like, oh, well, you know, and then they start going down a pathway and telling me about it. But part of what they're telling me is it's the relationships and connectedness that I have. I'm like, OK. Now, the and the relationship and connectedness, I'll say, does that apply to your work environment? And they're like, oh, for sure. Relationships and connectedness, does that apply to the courses you're doing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What about your social life? Oh, for sure. I said, can we replace family with relationships and connectedness? And they're like, okay, that makes total sense. Now you have one of your five. I think what you really need is someone who's there as a champion and enabler who's going to ask you questions to help you filter this. And the key element of this because people are fearful, because I'm making them pick five things. What if these are not the right five words? You know what? You pick five, 
that, that speak to you right now. And as you go through life, career, you, you change them as you go along. As you've changed, the words will change. But anything that you come up with that you've got with these five things, any opportunities that face you in life now, you balance it against those five things. Does it work or doesn't it? The reason I say it's so important is the clarity that's emerged. Like, for example, writing, I'm being an author. I mean, writing wasn't there eight years ago. It was never a goal of mine. But when writing emerged from doing that first TEDx speech I did, it hit five out of five. And I said, oh, I have to do this. Teaching 10 years ago wasn't even in a, an idea in my mind. But uh, when I was working on my master's and the associate dean tapped me on the shoulder and he says, you know, would you like to teach or this? You can teach now. And I was like, oh, it hit five out of five. That's how the clarity emerges. It's not a one stop. OK, now you're great. Perfect. Uh, I'll see you in 50 years at retirement. Uh, no, it it's just how, helping them realize and navigate, because, again, I think that there's a lot of noise. So how do we activate the voice within to be louder than the noise around? That is definitely something a lot of young people need, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I say that like I'm old, but I'm not that old, but I also mm -hmm. feel like I'm not that young anymore either. <laughs> and so by young people, I mean like newly graduated college kids and, you know, early 20s. I wish I would have had something like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your book. Yeah. Well, the idea is that, you know, I was born in England, raised in Canada. My parents come from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia. And my grandfathers came from India. And visibly, I mean, I look Indian. So people, it's very common for people to say, what part of India are you from? And I'd always say, well, I was born in England, raised in Canada. And they're like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India are they from? I'm like, well, my parents come from Fiji. And they look at me going like, are you Indian? I'm like, well, my grandfathers and my ancestors come from India. And then other times they'll say, well, you're not Indian, you're Canadian. Or Reagan, the, the one that I also love is, no, no, really, where are you from? Oh, my gosh. I'm sure that's annoying. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I just say, well, okay, planet Earth, definitely. And we can work <laughs> from there. But it was one of those things that um, my life was always segmented into different um, ethnic identities or cultural identities. But the Indian one always took a backseat to everything. And it wasn't because my parents said, oh, we're in Canada. You have to be Canadianized. It was just they got busy with work. We got busy with being kids growing up in school. I just found that it's what I was missing. The, the British, well, I got my cousins in England. I used to make my trips to there. That's fine. Fiji, well... Uh, that community, which is more closely associated. And I mean, being Canadian, I mean, we play road hockey, we eat pizza, you fall and scrape your knee and you bleed maple syrup. I mean, I'm pure Canadian right. that way. <laughs> uh, it was only when I hit university, because in high school, there was literally seven visible minority out of like five, six, seven hundred students. And you never really see yourself as different. Uh, you've assumed that role and responsibility. But when I got to university, it was a much more global, international audience. And I started making more friends with this cultural identity from South Asia, like India, Nepal, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan. And how they describe their cultural background, I felt that was missing out of my life. 
So I decided I needed to capture that. But part of what I also needed to capture was our ancestral roots. All I had to go by was a picture, a faded photograph that was given to me and of people standing in front of a house that was my, where my grandfather's house was. So the journey to India was twofold. Find the ancestral roots with that faded photograph. Try to see about this identity piece and try to become like realize the Indianness in me. The essence of this is I was a foreigner going to a land that shouldn't be foreign to me, searching for a needle in a haystack, but not knowing where the haystack was. And the book is called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself, because it was a two-part journey. The journey about finding myself, I had an epiphany while I was in a, a place in the northern part of India in Punjab in Amritsar. I just woke up at like four in the morning because I was trying to find how I connect to this place. And I just remember my life was always what we call a tali. And a tali is a platter in Indian dishes. So in other words, it's a platter, but segmented dishes. So I'm British, Canadian, Indian, and Fijian. And I mean, I played in an Irish military pipe band for, for 11 years. So there's a bit of Irish chutney in there as well. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a mix of everything. But what I realized is I woke up at 4 a.m. saying, I'm not this tali with segmented parts. I'm a rice dish called kichdi. And kichdi is this blend of flavors. And uh, it's almost like an omelet or something where you mix everything together. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's the realization of my identity is I'm a blend of flavors. And you know what? I can accept and appreciate all of these things that make up my component. The journey to find my ancestral roots was much more difficult and complicated because we had very little to go by, a lot of noise and, you know, setbacks along the way. But do you want the spoiler alert or no? Oh, go ahead and give it. I'll just throw in here the old spoiler alert for those of you who want to read the book but don't want to know the ending yet. <laughs> well, there were setbacks. And the idea was that a lot of people said you can't find it, won't find it, shouldn't find it and whatnot. But it was important to me. And I just remember, you know, the first time we went to look for the village, based on the information we had, it was setback after setback after setback. And I remember writing in my journal from a point of anticipation and excitement to disappointment and a sense and feeling of, of like, this isn't going to materialize. The next time, I just said, forget what everyone told us. Let's drive to the town that is supposed to be six miles from our village. and. You know, we got there and sure enough, people were like, never heard of the village. I think you got the name wrong, but we kept talking to people. And one guy said, the village you're looking for, I think is up the road this way, about six miles. And I just remember being very guarded at this point because mm -hmm. of the setbacks. Well, we drive up and there's this archway and seated there is this elderly gentleman, like literally 80, 90 years old. And we show him the photograph. And he looks at the photograph and he said, well, the people in the picture, the guy in the back looks like this one guy, but the house, I don't know. And the people in front, maybe not. And he gets into our vehicle and, but that was a common thing. Yeah. And I write in my journal, here we go again. And we drove to a house, people came out. And I just remember this one lady in this picture, mm -hmm. a lady who came out of the house, looked at this picture and she said, that's me. Who are you? So I've, found my grandfather's house amidst all of this turmoil, rejection, setbacks. 
And it just was one of those moments. It was my grandfather's house that we were now standing in front of. Mm-hmm. And I just remember with persistence, I really needed to do this. I took with me Ziploc bags. I wanted to capture this for my family back here in Canada. And I wound up going into the fields. I scooped up dirt and I brought dirt home from our village back home. So people in our family now knew that there was this connectedness to the soil that was back in our village. So that's the story and the journey of Lost and Found. That's really amazing. I I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I find it odd that that information about where mm-hmm. they're from got lost. Well, and what happened is, so in Indian culture, the second born usually inherits very little. So they venture out, they join the military, join the police, go on world excursions and things. And my grandfather, when he was 17, 18, hopped on a steamer ship and he was on his way to Argentina for cattle ranching. The boat stopped in Fiji and that's where he got off. And that's where, again, my father was born and then my, met my mom and they moved to England. From England, I was born and, and then we moved to Canada. But the whole idea behind it is there is this disconnection because now you're more concentrated with Fiji and the relationships and things there that people never really associated or connected themselves back to India. And that's very common where, uh, you know, from an immigrant standpoint, you focus and direct and dedicate everything where you are. My dad's older brother had gone to the village about 25, 30 years ago prior to that. But he passed away before any of that information would have made it back to us. That's how that information gets lost. And actually, you'd be surprised that it's a very common thing where, you know, records are never kept or information is just secondhand. And because it's an oral history, Mm -hmm. if you don't start early, that information literally becomes a fine, thin thread. For example, the, the woman who recognized herself about maybe... Eight years ago, seven years ago, she passed away. Now, if I went today, she wouldn't have been there and she would never have seen herself in that photo. Even talking to my parents, my uncles and aunts, they're older. That information for them is sparse or, you know, how much did my grandfather share with his family about his journeys and travels and things. So it's actually very common. I speak with a lot of people about that identity piece and uh, it's interesting how easy it is to lose it. But sites like Ancestry, 23andMe, if you're from Europe or anywhere where there's good records, you can trace a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, with places like India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, places in Africa, that information is not what you would really need. So yeah. it, was a, it was a difficult search, but I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, me too. I also talked to a lot of people who, for example, come from places like Italy or Croatia and, you know, their comments to me and, you know, anybody in general are like, it's, it's amazing that you were able to go back and actually find the house and family members that actually were disconnected from you. But they're like, unfortunately, I can't, Uh, we don't have any information. For example, one person I was talking to, their family background goes to Sicily He said, but we have no idea of the village, the town, uh, anything about it. But all we know is our ancestral roots come from Sicily. My thing to that person was, when you went to Sicily, was there something inside of you that just basically said it provided you some comfort, just provided you something to connectedness to this place? And he said, oh, yeah, no, I felt this connectedness to this place. 
I said, it doesn't matter if you don't find the house, the village, the town, but just the fact that you're in a place that just connects you as a part of your life as as equally as, as important as finding the house. And I think that's the way to capture it is, you know, you may not know exact location, but if you can actually sort of have the sense and feel that, yeah, there's something about this place that I'm connected to, you've, you've discovered something. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad does a lot of genealogies, but he's gotten us as far back on his side as to we have our tartan colors from, from Ireland. Yeah. So, you know, my mom's side, we are Swedish. Mm-hmm. And that's about all I got. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far that's on that side. So I'm sure my dad's looked that up. But And then you're saying that people lose, you know, mm-hmm. can lose these connections. It's sad. But also mm-hmm. now that you explain it, we're places where there weren't records that were kept. That makes sense now. Yeah. Well, and especially think of it this way. Right now, it's so easy to be connected to people anywhere around the world. Back then, there were no planes. It was steamerships. And if you wanted to write a letter, you might get a reply back in three months, maybe four months. You know, and what has changed in that three, four months? Mm -hmm. Um, That's the way we were communicating. In fact, I'm uh, working with a school in Nepal right now and uh, getting some of my students to potentially work with the school in Nepal, except Nepal said, but mail's not getting in. So it's like, okay, so how do we connect and stay connected? I think sometimes we uh, need to remember that so much of the world still is at a disadvantage, even though our devices do connect us, but equally at the same time, it's still a challenging world out there. I really haven't left the state. So I, at some point I would like to get experience out in the rest of the world because, you know, I just live in this little bubble here in the States and really don't know how the rest of the world works. I mean, I assume it works like it works here, but that is not the case, you know? No. Yeah. Nope. No. And by traveling, that really opens up a perspective and it breaks down barriers. It helps you to uh, realize who's out there. And I just remember a number of years ago, I was asked to go to the Middle East for work. And I remember the first time I was going The idea was I was going to land in Kuwait. Kuwait was right next to Iraq. Iraq's going through major upheaval. And everyone says, you're making the biggest mistake of your life to go to that part of the world. It's so dangerous. But I went and uh, I've, I've gone back numerous times, but I went for the first time. And I traveled the region, actually, not just uh, Kuwait, but all of the region there. And I just remember I came back and people would say, okay, so what was it like? What, was it really dangerous? And I said, oh, my gosh you're not going to believe how dangerous the place is. And they're like, really, what was it like? Like, what did you experience? I said, I tried to cross the road and it was so difficult. They were like, what do you mean? Sorry, I that said, sounds funny. Yeah, because they, they don't really have road safety, much like many of the countries in the world. And they were like, yeah, but what about what the news is showing? I said, no, no, it's safer to walk around the streets of Bahrain at midnight than it is for many places around that uh, either in the States or in Canada that, uh, and they're like, really? But you look like you fit in. I said, no, no, even my Canadian friends, they would walk around midnight by themselves and uh, it's safe there. But I always tell people there is something very dangerous in that region. And they were like, okay, what? And I said, well, uh, I spoke at a conference in Bahrain, finished on Thursday, Saturday, I'm leaving. 
and Fatima, a wonderful young woman, said, I'm going to pick you up on Friday and show you Bahrain. She comes to the hotel on Friday and I'm all set. And I come to the car and she said, I'm sorry, plans have changed. And I said, oh, don't worry, you go do what you have to do and I, I'll find my own way. She goes, no, no, no. My mom says I have to bring you home for lunch. Now, the dangerous part is sitting in front of a Bahraini mother who's cooked an entire meal. You've got an empty plate in front of you and she's got a spoon and she's going to feed you until you can't eat anymore. Now, that's dangerous. <laughs> that's so dangerous. I know. Well, I mean, because of the hospitality, just she mm -hmm. wants to make sure you're fed and looked after. My only recommendation for anyone who travels to anywhere around the world where there's a mother in front of you and she's cooked and you've got an empty plate, eat very slowly. <laughs> because the moment, and you know, when you rush and you eat and the, your plate's empty, they're not going to ask you. They And they drop it in your plate. And now you have to look at this and go, oh my God, now I have to eat this more stuff and the food is so good okay um after your journeys did you did you go planning on writing a book or Actually, did you no. come back and decide yeah it was after like um i i did a tedx speech on storytelling after i did that people said you should write a book and i was like i've never written a book and then i sort of found my way and wrote the book on storytelling and then um what i found was embedded in that first book was a small version of the bigger book, which was Lost and Found, emerged out of it. When I write my books, it's not about notoriety, status, or money. It's actually, especially this Lost and Found book, it's just a beautiful story that needs to be shared. And it just allowed me the opportunity to sit, write, and share. And that's, I think, what really mattered to me. And, and I think it comes from an authentic place. Mm -hmm. Then I think the words flow better when it comes from an authentic place. And you're not so worried about the audience because when you focus on the audience, what you write may be for them and it may not be authentic, but when you write for yourself, I'm, I, the book is written in a way that it just really captured what my journey was like for me. When I wrote about being in the golden temple and not a person who's religious, but I felt like I had this blanket wrap around me and I started to weep. And that sense and feeling I had, uh, I wanted to capture what I was feeling. And throughout the book, that's what I really wanted to share was take you with me to India so you could actually experience what I experienced. Yeah, I looked up because I'm, you know, not familiar with really any of the places there. So as I'm reading, I'm looking up these places and looking at the pictures and kind of looking at a little bit more information. And that definitely helped add to feeling that I would get about the place, the knowledge of it a little bit. So yeah, yeah. And all the colors that you were describing, everything's so bright. Yeah, the vibrancy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you really enjoyed that. So what about the little questions? At the mm -hmm. end of the Lost and Found book. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, I think it was more of, uh, even in the first book I wrote, there's a lot of questions I ask with space for people to write their answers. And I thought for Lost and Found, it would be nice to ask some reflective questions in case... People wanted to, you know, look within themselves and come up with some things for themselves that would be interesting for them to explore further. So it wasn't just a matter of, okay, here's the book and that's it. It was more like, here's some reflective questions to think about. I like that idea. I think it works well with that kind of book, especially mm -hmm. if it's about finding yourself in these places. I feel like people who are done reading it still get a little bit more engagement and then they can mm -hmm. bring it into their own world. Yeah. Well, and the way the book is written, it, due to the pandemic, people can't travel. 
or now we're starting to open up. So it's more like, okay, the book allows you to free your mind and travel. It's a book to help individuals start thinking about their own personal identity. It's also a book for someone who's wanting to seek their ancestral roots. And the book isn't a, a play-by-play of how you do it. It's more of here's what I did. But equally, I think for someone, that's another avenue. So there were like three parts that I think that this book sort of satisfies from an audience perspective. Mm-hmm. So did you have a plan on what you were going to do if you hadn't found the village? Or was it just like, if we do, we do. If we don't, we don't? I think it was, you know... If we don't find the village, I think I would have been really disappointed because anything I do pursue in life, it's done with conviction and purpose. But the realization would have been that this is a big country. I didn't do it. But I mean, I maybe would have tried to come back and do more research and then go back again to try to find it Mm -hmm. if that was at all possible. So I think it was almost like, okay, even if I can't find the village, at least I, I've been able to find my own identity, but I'm in a place where my ancestors were, even country-wise or um, the state of Punjab or wherever. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like I was accepting it before I found the house that in the event it doesn't happen, here's what I might do in the future moving forward. So what about, you said you'd written another book. How many books have you written? So I've written two. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a third was my master's thesis, but the first book was on storytelling. The second book is uh, Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. And, you know, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about for my next book as well. Oh, really? Um, yeah. One's a children's book, um, but I think it's geared for the professional world on leadership and followership. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write that. The other thing I've, I've done is I've got a, a whole ton of quotes that I live by on my Instagram account. It's almost like a a gift book of quotes that explain, yeah, that explains like, you know, one of my signature quotes is obstacles are the necessary bricks on a road to success. Don't fear the obstacles, embrace them because they're all all part of that learning journey. And I think we are afraid of those obstacles. I embrace them. So I'm terrified of them. So, you know. Oh, really? No, man. (laughs) I'm terrified of obstacles. I embrace them. And uh, equally, I thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty. A lot of people are afraid of that space. I saw the quote from Anthony Bourdain in the beginning mm. of your book. Are you a huge fan of yeah. his? That man was amazing. Yep. I think he helped me to define the difference between a tourist and a traveler. Really? Um, yes, because I never really saw a distinction between them. But by writing the book and traveling as I have... My realization is I'm a traveler, not a tourist. A tourist, and there's nothing wrong with being a tourist. A tourist just wants to see but not experience, whereas a traveler wants to experience. They want to, you know, walk the streets, eat the food, um, to talk to the people. And it made me realize that Anthony Bourdain quote really captured the essence of what the book was really about. The quote that I used at the beginning, which really captured it, Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. And that quote 
captured the essence of the book, but it also captured my own essence of how I travel. The world is full of amazing, dynamic people that are just like us. We, we all care and we all uh, appreciate each other. Though That's my experience wherever I've traveled and the people I've met. Uh, beautiful mm -hmm. souls. No, I just kind of, I didn't really have a whole lot of questions. I just wanted to come into this with a conversation yeah. sort of thing. Oh, totally. And I've enjoyed this conversation. I mean, it's, and that's the best part is it's a conversation. I think the world needs more conversations. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did your travels, when you came back, how did that affect the way mm -hmm. you spoke with people, taught people? Did that make a difference? Did it affect it in any way or not so much? Well, what it does is it enabled me to relate more to the people around me. It doesn't matter where they're from or who they are. Even if I've never been to the country where they're from, I want to know what it's like. But what it's allowed me to do is to appreciate people and to remove my perspectives of what I think that the life is like that. It's enabled me to open my mind and open my eyes to actually appreciate things more than what they are. That's really great. I'm glad that, you know, it sounds like you obviously came back from that whole experience mm -hmm. just with a better sense of yourself. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like a better sense of self helps you yeah. have a better sense of everything else. Yeah. And it was funny, Regan. I went to India to find my Indian identity. But my realization was I was always Indian, but I just needed to go there to just reignite or realize that it was always within me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have, like growing up or even, mm -hmm. you know, as, as an adult before you went, did you have this sense of sort of otherness because mm -hmm. you are Indian, but you're Canadian? Oh, yeah. Like it was more of, and it wasn't a matter of pushing it back or, I mean, at certain times I was embarrassed by it. Like when you're in high school and you're in a school with only seven visible minorities and you've got a name. So, I, I mean, I go by Sam, but my given name is Ajit. And Ajit means unconquerable, and it's a beautiful name. But, you know, growing up, and it wasn't because I was embarrassed by it that I chose Sam. No, I mean, when I was in England, tearing around the streets on my tricycle, my parents called me Sam as a nickname, and it stuck. But, you know, you grow up with that identity and uh, that name, and it, I like the name Sam, but I also like the name Ajit. And it doesn't mean that he's a Canadian and Canadianized version and trying to ignore his identity. It's never about that. Is there any any parting, anything you would like to say to any listeners? Sure. I always like to leave it with my signature tagline. And the line that I live by is everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. We're all building chapters, parts, stories, and we're all living stories. And our stories need to be shared. So never, never be afraid to share your story because you are a living story. Thank you for taking the uh, time to talk with me. This has been really fun. Uh, thank you, Reagan. I appreciated it too, and the opportunity to share my journey. Bye-bye.